The second tactic is the second tactic of conservatives is pseudo populism. That is, they literally hijack class issues. They talk about the liberal latte elites, you know, and those people versus honest regular folks. So they literally use a left-wing populist idiom, and they're using it. Uh, they use it. Uh, Tommy Frank, Tom Frank was written about this. Thomas Frank uh, in Kansas gives the example of that happening. Those, 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 uh, those elites, those, um, those intellectuals who look down on you regular folk and all that, well, we, the Republican Party, speaks for the ordinary, regular, middle Americans, you know. Uh, so they conjure up a class struggle, not only in terms of, but only, I should say, but only in terms of lifestyle issues. Um, The Democrats, they say, they speak for the intellectual snobs, the media elites, the alternative lifestyle people, the gays, the feminists, uh, irresponsible uh, uh, and dangerous elements in the minorities, and so forth and so on. Um, a bolder variation of this pseudo-class struggle by the reactionaries is to employ outright lies about economic issues. That's the simplest way. And this goes back, I mean, from Nelson Rockefeller to George Bush Jr. today, uh, you could see that uh, outright lies. We want to cut your taxes. How many people here have seen a, a dramatic decrease in their federal income taxes since George Bush is in? He talks about how much he's, well, you're not in the right bracket, I think. If you're up in that fraction of 1%, you would have seen very substantial increases. But you see, he doesn't say that, outright lies. We're cutting your taxes, the Democrats just want to tax you, tax you, tax you. Meanwhile, they're taxing. Uh, <clears throat> we're for working families, yeah, and they cut assistance to family. Family assistance programs have been cut. Uh, you get a better deal from us, less inflation, less wild spending of your tax dollar. These are all false, all false. There have been record deficits record deficits, inflation is there, real wages are not keeping up, wages not keeping up with inflation in the last five years. NPR, NPR radio, I heard this a statement made by a commentator not a few years ago, quote, if you remove fuel, food, and housing from the equation, there has been very little inflation in recent years. <laughs> You remove a few more things and it, inflation disappears altogether. <laughs> but that's a very interesting mode of analysis, isn't it? I mean, how far can you carry that? Can you apply that in other areas, that kind of mode of analysis? Uh, if you don't count the last 15 years, none of us have aged that much. <laughs> another, another technique is to conjure external enemies and threats that to further distract the populace away from class issues. 9-11 was a godsend. 9-11 was almost too perfect. 9-11 might lead one to entertain certain suspicions. We might just wonder about things. Um, now, whether you have a conspiracy theory, a 
about 9-11 of the kind that was put out by the media and the White House, a conspiracy theory that says that some Saudi Arabian young men hijacked these planes and had planned to drive them into the White That's a conspiracy. That's what conspiracy means. To collude together to commit some illegal act by illegal means or whatever like that. Either you have, uh, whether you have that conspiracy theory or you have the, another conspiracy theory that it was an inside job, a false flag operation, like Tonkin Bay or uh, <clears throat> the like, the sinking of the Maine, whatever, to create a casus belli and an international crisis and to get the people excited, frightened, and rallying around you, uh, you must allow that 9-11 did serve the reactionaries so very well. And in their, in their plan, in their secret, secret, secret plan called Rebuilding America's Defenses, I am only one of about 11 million people who got hold of this plan. It's right there on the internet. You know, when people say to you, what do you got, a conspiracy? I said, no, what, what conspiracy? Well, what, you're ascribing to them these intent. I said, I'm not ascribing anything to them. It's on the goddamn internet. They go to Project for a New American Century and they publish the thing and they said, the American people are not going to go along with an agenda of perpetual war as we want, an agenda of global wars and such, to, so that the U.S. can maintain a super, uh, superpower position unless they are driven into it by some cata catastrophic uh, danger like Pearl Harbor. They said that. Well... Well, you must allow that it served the reactionaries very well. And Project for a New American Century is not just some obscure group. You know who were, you know who were members of it? Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz, Elliot Cohn, Elliot Abrams, uh, Jeb Bush, Richard Pearl, all the people you love. <laughs> and they are now they were now in power. Well, at the very least, I would say this, at the very least, if you don't want to get into all the 9-11 stuff, at the very least, you've got to say that the evidence very strongly suggests that the administration knew something was up. What I just said, I realize as I said it, is an incorrect statement. It doesn't suggest, it states explicitly the August 6th memo that the CIA sent to the White House stated explicitly that a terrorist attack of very serious scope was coming. And you know, remember Bush, you remember Bush's response? I saw him, I listened to him on TV. He said, yeah, they told us there would be an attack, but they didn't say when or where or how or why. Uh, excuse me, are you the president or something? So what, so you went to Texas for vacation? Are you the president or something? Do you, you only act when it's served to you on a platter and the exact time and date with photographs and whatever else is provided? Don't you start doing things? Don't you put people on alert? Don't you at least even, at least tell the airlines? And they didn't, it didn't even alert the airlines, didn't even alert airports that there might be something coming up. And as a matter of fact, they did tell them where, when, how, to some degree. They said when, Soon, they said how it would consist, it would involve 
hijacking passenger planes. They said where major metropolitan areas and they even said who? They said Al-Qaeda, whatever Al-Qaeda is. Where is Al-Qaeda these days? Why aren't they? That's the real mystery. Why aren't they doing more of these things? It's an odd thing, isn't it? Funded by the CIA. Isn't it? The conjuring of external threat also allows for a war against Iraq. I say allows for because again, Project for New American Century had targeted Iraq and said, we should invade and occupy Iraq. That was something that the Bush Jr. administration was dedicated upon, uh, uh, talked about doing and wanted to do before 9-11. But Iraq is a disaster of policy. Iraq, you can't say that helps the interests of the empire. Well, is it really entirely a disaster for the guys at the top? Multi-billion dollar contracts to Halliburton, Bechtel, and over a hundred other corporations, an immense source of profit and accumulation for corporate America, a single greatest bonanza, um, for corporate America in generations, or since the last war maybe, I don't know, all compliments of the U.S. taxpayer. Iraq, the war, also rallied public opinion around the flag. This was a guy who was already down to 45% ratings uh, uh, September, on September 10, 2001. His, his ratings were like down here. Um, and suddenly public opinion rallies went up. Support for him was up at 90% or 80%, whatever. Uh, rallying around the flag. Your country is under siege. You're an American, patriotic. We're going to win. We're going to survive. We're going to fight. And that flag is wrapped around the president. So you conjure up external threat, support our troops, defend our homeland, and you hand over more and more power to the executive uh, component of the state. Iraq also issues in the whole era of perpetual war. They use that term. Not a president who says we should long for peace, we should explore to see how we can propagate peace, but a president who talks about war. Do you recall his speech at, at, at Annapolis graduation this past spring when he said to the midshipmen, he, he said, I, I wish I'd, I'd written the speech down, but I thought of this on the plane coming over. But um, he talked, he, he just was so up. He was saying, our technology, our, our defense, our military technology is getting better and better. Future wars are going to be fought with more precision, uh, fewer casualties for us and fewer casualties for the, for the civilians and with greater success and, and more lethal power. And, and, you know, like whoopee for war. He's, he keeps, he keeps refer, referring to future wars. When he started the war against Afghanistan, he said, this is the first war of the 21st century. The first war, like he's anticipating a whole series of wars. Uh, and he would. If he didn't, if the insurgency in Iraq didn't have them pinned down and with their backs to the wall now, they would be in Iran by now. They would have, they would have taken Syria by now. Um, 
And war means record profits, record contracts, record military budgets. He's increased, he's expanded the military spending by some 50%. That's an incredible climb. War prevented Iraq from converting its reserve currency from dollars to euros, which Saddam Hussein was threatening to do. If nations no longer, accept, no longer accept the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency, that could bring disaster for U.S. trade and imports and for the dollar itself. The U.S. will be stuck with hundreds of billions of these paper dollars that nobody wants anymore. This could bring everything down. Iraq's economy has been totally privatized, except for oil, which is still nominally government owned, but the oil is being taken out by British and US companies. Um, the economy under Saddam Hussein was totally state owned. In fact, Donald Rumsfeld used a very, uh, very interesting term. I was amused by it. He said, it's a Stalinist economy. Stalinist, see that? So we're fighting Stalinism in Iraq. The U.S. had a commission set up before, before the invasion of Iraq, before February and March 2003. They had a commission set up expressly to privatize the Iraqi economy. That was in 2002. That is a central goal of the global free market empire, to take any country that is self-defining, self-developing in any way, and turn it into a totally privatized, totally deregulated component of the free market global system. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't mean they've privatized the economy, that they've gone in and built a consumer economy. I mean, you don't have McDonald's and uh, Starbucks in Iraq now. I mean, you don't even have, you don't even have uh, utilities, private utilities going on. I mean, the whole thing is a shambles. So they haven't built the alternative economy, but they destroyed they haven't built the, the, the privatized economy, but they destroyed this alternative one. And any country that tries to use its land, labor, resources, and markets in outside of the global free market system is going to be targeted. And its leaders will be told, will be called uh, thugs and will be called uh, uh, enemies of the U.S. and hostile to us and all that. Any country does that and, uh, and they will be targeted. And the people in their fear will rally around um, their leaders to save them. U.S. intervention in Iraq also wiped out all the oil contracts with Russia that Saddam Hussein had set up with Russia, China, France, Italy, and a few other countries. The U.S. and the British are getting the oil. Seems like old times, like 1957 again. They're only taking out about half as much as they could potentially get, and some of that is because the oil lines get 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 blown up, and you know, and that sort of thing. But they're still getting it. They're getting, it. and by the way, they're not even they're not even marketing much of that. They're keeping it off the market. That's often one of the things they want to do: keep it off the market, keep the oil supply scarce, keep the prices up. Prices now, as you know, are down, and they're guaranteed to stay down at least until November seventh. Um, <laughs> Election day after election day, you can hold on to your wallet again. <laughs> yes. And finally, the occupation of Iraq, had it gone right, it would have established a strategic place in the Middle East. 
It would have wiped out, it, it did wipe out one of Israel's potential opponents. I say potential because uh, Saddam Hussein, who was a ruthless killer and a murderer and, uh, and was put in by the CIA, a fact that the media has total amnesia about, everybody in public life has total amnesia, that Saddam Hussein was CIA for most, during the most murderous, torturous, brutal part of his career, he was working for the CIA. But, not a word of that, not a word of that now. Um, but he also, he also showed sympathy for the Palestinians and all that, and probably gave them funds and all that. And when I was in Baghdad, I stayed at the palace, uh, what's it called, Hotel Palestine. So, um, that's all gone. And Iraq, you know, Iraq is a, is a hub if you look at the map. It borders, it borders the most important countries in area. Iran, Saudi Arabia, uh, Kuwait, Turkey, Syria, Jordan, uh, right there. You, you got the control of that. You got a lot of leverage and you got a lot of points, uh, attack points or whatever. Now all of that explains why the U.S. went into Iraq but not why they're staying. I mean, I think some of it does explain why they're staying. I just had this discussion with my son today. He just got back from Afghanistan. He said, well, why are they staying? And now that I think about it, well, that does, because the contracts are still coming in, the military spending is still coming in, and all that sort of thing. But the other point is they really are stuck now. They are faced with a policy that is failing, failing desperately. They're caught, but the costs are not that great. The political costs are not that great, really. It's still a rallying point. It's still their theme, which is terrorism. And the only reason we're not getting attacked now is because we're still pursuing it there. We've got to stay the course. They're going to hang on indefinitely. There's no massive peace movement and resistance. They're losing 10, 12 soldiers a week. Richard Nixon lost 110 a week. That's when it was a problem. And there were, and there were hundreds of thousands of people out on the street. Look at Afghanistan. It's an entirely a, a failure as an undertaking. It is really done. And you remember the Republicans, just when they had that debate in the Senate about getting out of Iraq, one, one after the other on message. We mustn't cut and run. We mustn't cut and run. We can't tuck our tail between our legs and run. We can't cut. Well, that's what he's doing. That's what George Bush today is doing in Afghanistan. He's cutting and running. He cut the number of troops in Afghanistan. He just yesterday, day before yesterday, took 12,000 American troops in Afghanistan and put them directly under NATO command. Now, how often, how often does, a, does a U.S. commander, U.S. president do that? Directly, not coordinated with NATO, not working within there, not the prime force, but under NATO non-American command. So, you know, let the wimpy Europeans take the rap if this whole thing goes down the tubes. Every development project in Afghanistan, Afghanistan is ended. There's nothing they're doing. There's zero security. Zero. They, they, and the Taliban are resurging all over the place. So in both those countries, force and violence has made things worse and more horrible than ever. Um, the NATO troops, my son who just got back from Afghanistan, as I say, the, the, the NATO troops, most of them, are staying in their barricades, um, <clears throat> not really patrolling. So I think I've gone on much too long, haven't I? No, um, no.
Oh, all right, well, I just got too much here, I realize now. What we're seeing over the last 30 years is a really reactionary campaign to roll back the gains of the 20th century. Um, they preach the ideology of plutocracy, which is the ideology of the free market, that the free market will bring you all sorts of blessings. The goal is to elevate corporate property rights to a level above all other human rights. And they do that with free trade, that anything you try to do for the economy, for the environment, for this, for people, protections, regulations, all that, that violates free trade treaties, then, then it's out. So the property investment right is being elevated to an unanswerable status. They made liberal a dirty word. Um, They, they, um, they developed an ideological reactionary mass media networks, C CBN, Fox, a hundred of right-wing radio talk shows every week. And those talk shows, those politicians, these leaders, they're always on message. They always have the polemical point and they're driving it home. You don't see that, you don't see that among the moderates. The moderates are too busy trying to show that they're moderate and balanced and they're not pushing too hard. Larry, you don't see, you see it on Bill O'Reilly. That guy, any issue that comes up, he is hitting and hitting and hitting home his view of the world. He has a whole Weltanschauung, a whole view of the world and he is driving that home. And every one of these guys are, do, are doing that. Uh, you don't see that on Larry King. Larry King, he's, what is he busy doing? Showing off his suspenders and interviewing <laughs> this person and doing a little fluff here and a little fluff there. And, and uh, can you honestly say what his politics are, if he even has any? He does have politics. He had Warren Beatty on one day and he said, what's your, what's the favorite movie you, you have? what's your favorite movie of all the ones you made? And Beatty said, Reds. And Larry King looked at him and said, we'll break for a commercial. <laughs> no, that's what I, I've called that when I've done that. Um, I, I have a, a media techniques of control. I call that the non-follow-up. The guy says something, you, you cut. You turn to the, next, the other person on the panel or you break for a commercial and you never go back to that issue. So, that's amazing. Wow, that's amazing. Um, they've learned to enlist religion, homophobia, sexism, and bigotry to distract the populace from class issues and substantive democracy. Okay, it doesn't look good now to be an out-and-out -out bigot. You can't go out and say, those niggers, right? You can't say that. This isn't 1940 Alabama anymore. But you got other coded ways you can talk about. Quotas and affirmative action and uh, inner city crime and this and that. And, and there are these buzzwords that, that, that get out there. Um, they're stealing elections. They stole the 20, 2004 election, even bigger than the 2000 election. I have an article on that if you want it. I'll be happy to email it to you. It'll be out in this new book that I'm, that I'm doing called Contrary Notions. Um, but there's been a lot of good writing on this done by people like uh, Harvey Wasserman and Bob Fatrakis and uh, Steve Freeman and... Um, and um, Martin Crispin Miller, is it Martin? Mark, Mark Crispin Miller. Uh, it's incredible what they've done. Suppressing voter registration rolls, sabotaging voter stations, rigging uh, uh, accounts with touchscreen voting machines. 
In the state of Nevada, I was telling some friends today, in the state of Nevada, John Kerry lost every county that had touchstone, uh, touch screen uh, voting machines. Every county and um, every one of those counties. Could you open a, a door over there, please? Open the door, because it's, it's sweltering hot in here. Every one of those counties, it correlated with nothing else, not income, ethnicity, past voting patterns. It didn't, the only thing it correlated with was these voting machines. Um, um, they're rigging it and they're suppressing the vote right today, just yesterday, just, just uh, this past week, the House passed a law uh, requiring proof of citizenship if you're gonna vote. Well, you know, low-income people, elderly, others, a lot of us don't have, unless you have a passport or unless you can find your birth certificate somewhere, um, this is another thing. It's a constant struggle to get the vote. And they do this, again, under one of these false issues, that burning issue of voter fraud. Don't you know, how many of you know of at least seven or eight people who have fraudulently gone and vote where they weren't supposed to vote and were not qualified to vote? Raise your hands. Come on. Ah, oh, bunch of bunch of lefties or something. Um, cameras, please note, no hands went up. Okay. <clears throat> what we need to do, and let me end here, is become increasingly aware of what is happening. Increasingly link events to polemical points. See the political dimensions. Be on message ourself. Rather than diluting the message, and I'm always, all my life, I've had people sidle up to me telling me to dilute the message, especially when I was in academia. Oh, dilute your message. Say less so that you'll reach more people or, you know, you won't get too much flack and all that. No, don't dilute your message. Press it with militancy, uh, with dedication. Cross all those lines. Cross those parameters of respectable opinion into uh, unrespectable, unrespectable opinion. <clears throat> the major media pretty much belong to conservative forces. Let me prove that by just a question. Did everything, did, the things I said tonight about imperialism in class, have you ever heard any of that on CBS, NBC, ABC, or Fox News Network? <laughs> or any of the other fucks that were in, 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 involved in the media, in, in mainstream media? Have you ever? Yet reactionaries, reactionaries do believe that the media are liberal. First, that's a way of keeping the media on the defensive. Keep accusing them of being liberally biased, that keeps them on the defensive, and they're constantly leaning over, like all liberals are doing, sucking up to the conservative. Oh, you know, oh, 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 no, no. Oh, well, let's hear from you. No, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, well, you got something in what you're saying. You never hear those other guys saying that to us. And second, they really do feel that way at times because the news does report things that are disturbing to them, like the war in Iraq and all that. Because the problem is that reality is radical. So when the news gets a little piece of reality right, these guys on the far right see that as liberal propaganda. Why do you have to discuss that? Why do you have to have that? Why do you have to report to all of these uh, these these American soldiers who are being killed in, in Iraq. Do you see reports of the American soldiers who were killed in Iraq on Fox? No. They don't. They love the soldiers. They support the soldiers, but they won't report how many have been killed or maimed and all that. 
Why, why do you want to do that, liberal media? You want to do that because you want to provoke, because you want to propagandize, and you want to make George Bush look bad. You see, it's a liberal media. You're not being objective by reporting those things. And they convince themselves quite honestly of this. But see, it really is true that reality is radical. It really is true that real wages have remained flat or declined. That's not a, a liberal or leftist argument or polemic, that's a fact. But when you report it, they see you as polemicizing and not being objective and trying to badmouth the economy and drag it down. It really is true that the major tax cuts went to the super rich. Big cuts for the big people and little cuts for the little people, if any. It really is true that global warming is happening. They finally have to, finally have to acknowledge it or ignore it. But again, they see you, what, what is all this global warming? What is it all about? What are, you, what are you distracting people with that concern for? You see, they conjure up fears and threats in us, but they themselves are not afraid of the things they should really be afraid of, which really are dangers. It really is true that 45% of Americans do not have health insurance. And if you don't have a health insurance and you can't pay for health insurance, that means you can't even afford a doctor. And if you can't afford a doctor when you're ill, you have real problems and real troubles. And one could go on. So we mustn't retreat from that message. Um, let's, so let's educate ourselves, propagate our message, uh, organize, agitate with uncompromising militancy. Thank you very much.